Hey everybody, Dr. Axe here. Welcome to another podcast. So excited today to have on this broadcast, Dr. Paul Saladino. And uh, you know he is the author of The Carnivore Code and he's written other, uh, other books as well. He's got a podcast called The Fundamental Health Podcast. Again, he's a medical doctor who's been featured on The Doctors uh, in many other, uh, many other places as well and, and really has a very different take on things compared to, you know, we hear a lot of things about plant-based today, the importance of plants, but we're going to talk about the importance of meat today, protein, healthy fats, all kinds of stuff. want to welcome the show today, Dr. Paul. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Well, cool. Again, I've uh, been through your stuff, you know, been a little bit through your website, seen a lot of the stuff you've posted. And I know that, you know, we have some uh, mutual people we know and are friends with, Dr. Ben, or, uh, ben Greenfield, who's a buddy of mine. I know you know Dr. Gundry, Dr. Mercola, and some other great people. And, um, you know, I was looking through and, and talking to my team. They said, hey, you know, you should check out this guy, Dr. Paul. And I started looking through some of your material in terms of this, car you know, uh, following a carnivore's diet. Um, and man, I was just really intrigued. So one of the things, you know, I'd love to start off asking today is what sort of turned you on to this as a medical doctor? Because I tend to see a few, you know, more medical doctors, uh, if they are going to talk about diet, uh, it seems to be a lot of times it's more vegan based. So I'd love to hear sort of your background and what turned you on to this and how it's working for your patients. Yeah, it's working amazing for my patients. You know, it's, it's incredible. I get emails and I hear from people every single day with autoimmune issues across the board that have been told by their physicians that they'll never be fixed from Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, Sjogren's, scleroderma, multiple sclerosis, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, eczema, asthma, psoriasis, fibromyalgia, the list goes on and on, cardiovascular disease, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, irritable bowel syndrome. And it's so cool to see all of those things often improve significantly or completely resolve with dietary change. And I know you're a huge fan of dietary change as well, but intentional dietary change is so powerful. So in my own life, a lot of this journey was motivated by per my personal health issues. I think that's what happens for most of us, that I had eczema and asthma that were pretty bad, pretty freaking bad for the majority of my life. In residency, I had, I had eczema all over my lower back, all over my knees and elbows in medical school. I did a lot of jujitsu and I had to stop doing it because I had such bad eczema all over my body. And at that time, I was eating a paleo diet. So I was eating a diet that I think is a really good start for people. It emphasizes meat and you know some vegetables, and it wasn't working for me. So that was where sort of the next step came into carnivore and thinking about a plant toxicity spectrum. But even earlier in my life, I had gone down the vegan road and I'd done plant-based diets and I lost 25 pounds of lean muscle mass and became an emaciated stick figure who was a little bit irritable, had horrible gas, and was a nightmare to be around in any enclosed space because my gas was so bad. It was just horrible. So I think that, so my medical journey was that my dad is a doc. My dad's an internist and I saw him really get overwhelmed by medicine. So I went to PA school first. I was a physician assistant. I worked in cardiology for four years. And I was at the beginning of that time that I was a vegan because you know what? None of us get taught nutrition in medical school or residency. So that was the first thing that I stumbled upon. And at first it was appealing. My experience was so drastically bad that I realized this is not the way that I should go with this at all. And then I got into kind of paleolithic thinking, the ideas around humans have been eating meat for a long amount of time and it made more sense. 
added meat back to my diet, gained some weight back, felt better, but the eczema never fully resolved, never got all the way better, which was a bummer. And so fast forward, I, as a physician assistant, I came to the same realization that you did, you know, pretty early in my career, which was Western medicine, mainstream medicine is treating the symptom rather than the root cause of the disease. And that drove me crazy. And I realized, you know what? I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do to affect the change that I want to affect in people's lives unless I go back to medical school. I got my doctorate. I got, you know, I went to medical school at the University of Arizona. I got my MD. And then I went to residency at the University of Washington, always with the intention of understanding what is the root cause of illness. And I was particularly fascinated by autoimmune illness because it just engulfs so many things. And there's so many commonalities among autoimmune illness. So, with that in mind, I had already been down the plant-based road and I kind of had already experienced the benefits of a paleolithic lifestyle or an ancestral lifestyle. And I realized, hey, this is, this is pretty cool. I think this is the way that, that I should be eating as a human, but this permutation of this isn't really working for me. My eczema continued to be pretty bad. And that was when I started thinking, do I need to eat all these plants? Am I thinking about plants properly? Because we've often been told you know, by everyone essentially, that plants are good for us, that plants are beneficial, that plants have all these beneficial molecules and polyphenols, and that humans need fiber. But, you know, in my own life, I began to challenge those assertions and look into the research around all of this and say, you know, what's the real research around these polyphenols and the fiber need for humans? And I eventually discovered that, hey, a lot of this stuff is maybe not necessary for all humans, or at least that plants exist on a toxicity spectrum, on a spectrum of toxicity. And I think a lot of people will experience similar benefits to those that I have seen and my patients and clients have seen if they understand a couple of really important things. Number one, animal meat and organs, critical food for humans, absolutely shaped our evolution as humans, central to optimal human health, incorrectly vilified for the last 70 years by bad science. And number two, plants do exist on a toxicity spectrum. They can be useful as medicine, but if we're going to use plants as food, we should really think about which plants are more and less toxic and how that might be affecting us negatively and a lot of people who aren't getting better otherwise. So those are the key takeaways there. And of course, in the animal foods realm is the importance of getting organs and not just eating meat, eating nose to tail. But that's kind of my story and how I got here. I wrote a book, have my own podcast and spreading the message as much as I can because it's such powerful uh, thinking about kind of this reimagining of what's evolutionarily consistent for humans, what's really a species appropriate diet for humans. Yeah, you know, I, I think I find it interesting. One of the things in terms of my point of view is that very much that different diets suit different people well. You know, if you look at ancient Chinese medicine, who I think in my personal belief system has done uh, the most um, individualized case studies. Uh, you know, I'm not saying double blind, whatever studies we do today, but the most individual case studies since the, you know, for over 3000 years, you know, they're going to, they're, they're, they're going to say, Hey, different people do better on different diets. Some people do better with more meat. Some people with less, but generally speaking, they have pretty much have everybody eat meat in Chinese medicine and a lot of things like liver, which again, I know was something that you talk about and you promote, you know, talk about nature's probably greatest superfood and liver. Um, you know, it's, uh, so anyways, you know, and I do look at the paleo diet and it doesn't work for a lot of people. One of those reasons is it's kind of interesting. Paleo dieters, the amount of nuts that they consume oftentimes is very unhealthy. And the amount of oils, you know, you're not going to find a lot of nuts and, or just pro, you know, just oil in a, you know, if, if somebody is living the diet, you know, the lifestyle of a hunter or gatherer. So I think that's another thing that tripped people up. And I know in my work and when I ran my functional medicine clinic and what I know today about 
eczema in those conditions, it's damp heat and nuts are going to make it much worse. And, and certain plants that are warming like garlic and onions and other things. So anyways, it's interesting to hear. And, and, I, and I understand sort of, sort of the line you're in there. And so talk to me about this. So, you know, we have had chronic diseases increasing so much over the past 50 to 100 years. Heart disease, diabetes, cancer at the very top of the list, along with neurological illness and autoimmune disease. What, what, what do you see as the correlation in terms of diet and lifestyle that have caused that to, you know, climb so steadily? I love this question, Josh. It's probably the most important question that that humans that we should be asking in medicine today. And it's something I talked about recently on, on Joe Rogan's podcast when I was on there. And I think that anyone who has a dietary idea, anyone in medicine, anyone who wants to talk about nutrition needs to be able to answer this question because what you're stating is undeniable. There has been a explosion, a negative explosion in a negative way of human you know, disease and a real decline in human health over the last 100 years. We see an incidence, as you say, of heart, we see an increased incidence of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, everything, obesity. It's just off the charts, autoimmune disease. So what are we doing differently over the last 100 years? And when I look at this question, the main driver of this, I think, is, is processed food. But I'm going to break it down a little further as I get into that because let's just fast, let's just rewind the tape, right? We'll put in the VHS cassette and rewind the VHS cassette, go back to 1850 or even 1880 or 1860. Now, our medical knowledge was severely, significantly more limited, but we had a good sense of what the prevalence and incidence of these diseases were. Heart disease wasn't even really described until the early 1900s cancers were much more rare, diabetes, obesity, these were extreme rarities in 1860 or 1880. What did our diets look like in 1880, 1860, early 1800s, late 1700s? One thing we can say for sure is that we ate a lot of animal foods when they were available, and we ate a lot of animal fat. And animal fat was the only fat that we ate. We had no such thing as processed seed oils in 1860. That was actually when cottonseed oil was first created, and then it was popularized as a as a, a Crisco, sort of a hydrogenated oil in 1911. But for the majority of our recent history, the last 500 years, we've been eating animal fat. Tallow, which is rendered animal fat, lard from pigs that were not finished on corn and soy. We've been eating tons of saturated fat, tons of animal fat. And then suddenly around 1900, something really significant happened in our fat supply. And we know about the same time things happen with sugar too. But I'm looking at two main culprits here, and they are seed oils, processed seed oils, and processed sugars. And I actually think that the main driver is the processed seed oils. And we can get into the problems with sugar. I think most people are very familiar with the problems with high fructose corn syrup or processed sugars. Clearly, there's no nutrients associated with this. There are zero micronutrients, and they're very easy to overeat. Human physiology really goes off the rails when we exceed our calories. And that makes a lot of sense evolutionarily because we have a lot of checks and balances in our hypothalamus, the ventral medial hypothalamus, all these parts of our body that are supposed to give us satiety when we are eating real whole food. When we create foods that are synthetic, like seed oils or these processed sugars, there's no satiety mechanism there and things go off the rails. But if you look at the way that human physiology changes when we exceed what is essentially two to four million years of evolutionarily consistent intake of omega-6 oils in very low amounts in humans, and we go off the charts in terms of increasing soybean, corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, peanut, grapeseed oil, you see some really significant lines of evidence pointing to the fact these excess omega-6s 
specifically linoleic acid are driving problems at a lot of different levels, but really specifically at the level of the mitochondria for a number of different reasons. In the mitochondrial membrane, there's a, there's, a, there's a phospholipid called cardiolipin, and there's so many interesting pieces of evidence that when this cardiolipin gets enriched in linoleic acid, it can degrade in the membrane, and then cytochrome C goes out the membrane pore in the mitochondria. You get triggering of apoptosis, and basically this whole cascade of mitochondrial dysfunction follows if we eat an evolutionarily inconsistent amount of linoleic acid. And this circles back to your point. So I... I don't, I, I agree with you completely. I think nuts and seeds and grains and legumes, which are all plant seeds, are some of the most highly defended parts of plants and are not good for humans. And when they're eaten by indigenous cultures, they're, they're detoxified extremely. And a lot of these nuts and seeds are higher in linoleic acid. And evolutionarily, we're never going to get 14, 15, 20% of our calories from linoleic acid. Indigenous hunter-gatherers, Hadza, Ikung, San, Samburu, Wherever you go, they get one, two, three percent of their calories from linoleic acid. So, my feeling is that the major driver of this chronic disease epidemic is evolutionarily inconsistent consumption of food. And the main foods that we are consuming are seed oils and processed sugars. And, like I said, the processed sugars will be familiar to people, but a lot of people are not really as familiar with how damaging these excess seed oils can be in human physiology. And I've done numerous podcasts on my podcast which as we said, is fundamental health about the problems with seed oils at all sorts of levels of granularity. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of wisdom there. I just want to hit on a few things here. I couldn't agree with you more on the fact that, I mean, we were getting far too many of these omega-6 fats uh, from seeds. You know, a lot of times people will, will you know, we've taken and vilified peanut oil to, to a degree because it has omega-6s, but then we have in health food stores today, people using copious amounts of sunflower and safflower oils and, you know, and lots of others too, that are these omega-6, you know, you know, grape seed to a, to a degree, it's, you know, a little more mono, but you know, it, that being said, it's a still, lot of poly and there, there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's a, a lot good of, amount of poly. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so again, that being said, there, there's a lot of omega-6s. We're getting far too many of these. We're missing out on the omega-3s and the saturated, you know, it's interesting. I had a, um, you know, we have a, uh, a six month old daughter. And as uh, we're working with her skin now, like we, we use um, beef tallow and we use coconut oil, but mostly those because they're the saturated fats that your body most recognizes. They're mo but again, the same thing with our body's internal organs, what our body does well with, I agree, it does best with those saturated fats. Uh, one thing I do want to mention just for my audience and just so, and, and this isn't me trying to give any, uh, you know, discredit what you're saying, but my, my, my viewpoint is very much uh, not in line with evolution in terms of us being around for 6 million years. You know, if so, I think we would have found, uh, you know, some evidence that there was a, a body type in between a human being and a, you know, amoeba or a monkey or a goat or whatever, you know, people postulated we came from. So anyways, I just want to be clear for me, you know, the theory of evolution is just what it is, a theory theory. Darwin didn't even believe in it by the time he died. And yet it's what we're teaching in our school systems today. So anyways, I do want to say whether or not somebody believes in evolution or not based on this podcast, I do agree with the fact that we are eating a diet today that's not in alignment with, to your point, how we evolved or to my point, how we were created. It's not living in alignment. And, you know, I see a lot of people in the paleo community, again, they might eat more nuts and seeds than any other food. You know, it's absolutely crazy to the degree. And I've also seen people with autoimmune disease, I've seen them 
see the greatest degree of healing when they ate a diet that was made up of only two things, essentially meat slash bone broth and some cooked vegetables. And that was it. And seeing the greatest. So I'd love to hear from you too. And working with, well, let's dive in and talk about some of these conditions. Like, have you, do you have examples of people you've worked with, with some of these conditions, maybe some of their background? What exactly did you have the meat? Was it only meat or did you have meat plus some other things? Like, and, and what were the results they saw? So I can think of a number of examples here. Um, I worked with a pair of twin boys who were in their late teens, early twenties, and they had eczema from head to toe, both of them. And I, you know, boys in their twenties, late teens are eating pretty much standard diet, but because their eczema was so bad, they tried a number of different things beyond that. They'd gone to paleolithic diets, they'd done ketogenic diets, they'd done vegan diets, and none of them had succeeded in, in resolving their eczema. And so when I worked with them, I had them do a pretty significant carnivore diet. Now, I want to be clear that there's a lot of different ways to think about this. And the framework that I generally try and communicate to people is like I was suggesting earlier, number one, animal meat and organs are the center of the human diet. They've always been favored. They are simply the most nutrient-rich foods we can eat, incorrectly vilified. Plants exist on a toxicity spectrum. And seed oils and sugars are the main problem for people. So I'm not dogmatic about only eating meat or meat and organs. I'm eating animal foods. But for a lot of people, that works very, very well. And one of the things that I would suggest, one of the ideas that I advance in my book, The Carnivore Code, is that, hey, look, humans can get every single nutrient we need from eating animals nose to tail. Now, the nose to tail is important. You got to get the organs and we'll come back to that as well. But I think for people who have bad autoimmune disease or significant eczema, which is of course an autoimmune disease, starting off with a completely animal-based diet with no plants is totally viable. And I've eaten that way for years at this point with no problems. That was actually what led to, that was the catalyst for the remission in my own eczema was a completely animal-based diet for over a year and a half, no plants at all. And I think that if you're eating nose to tail, you'll get everything you need doing that. Now, for people who are not that sick or who are looking to optimize, I think you can incorporate some plants considering a spectrum of toxicity, avoiding the most toxic plants, including the least toxic plants. We can talk about how I conceptualize that based on which part of the plant. Nuts are clearly one of the more toxic parts of plants. I, I actually believe that plant leaves and seeds and nuts and grains and legumes and stems and roots are all toxic plant parts because they're all defended parts of the plant. And that fruit can often be some of the least toxic parts of a plant. So if somebody was trying to do a carnivore-ish type diet, I think there is room for less toxic parts of plants, especially when they're cooked well. We can eat sweet fruit that's not cooked, or we can eat non-sweet fruit and cook it like a squash, uh, things like this. Avocado is non-sweet fruit, olives. But just thinking about it from the perspective of a plant, this idea is intuitive for most people that if you are a plant and you are rooted in the ground and you know those plants do not want to get eaten and they have developed, they have defense chemicals within them to dissuade animals from consuming them and humans and insects. And we know that, uh, that these phytoalexins exist in addition to things like phytic acid, oxalates, so many other defense chemicals in plants. We can't ignore this. The question is not whether plants are toxic. It is how well each of us can individually detoxify the plant toxins that we're taking in and how much we're able to do that with cooking. Sometimes it helps somewhat, but not completely. So there is a spectrum of plant toxicity. And for a lot of people, 
for these two individuals, they went completely carnivore, completely nose-to-tail carnivore. Within a few weeks, the eczema is like 98% gone. So clearly wow. there's something going on here. And then they, they've stayed nose-to-tail carnivore. Now, I do think there is, um, there's a lot of discussions that can branch off from this. I don't think that a specific macronutrient ratio is necessary for humans to have health. I think that cyclic ketogenic diets can be quite helpful for many people, but it's not required. So there is a possibility for the inclusion of some carbohydrates, whether sweet or starchy. And I think there's, a, there's definitely evidence for this in indigenous hunter-gatherer cultures today as well. So that's, this, that's one of the, op, the, the stories. I had a person with really bad plaque psoriasis that had pretty much the same improvement. I've worked with people with severe bipolar and suicidality that had it improved with these sort of changes in their diet. Um, I've seen fibromyalgia improve, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis. I mean, like I said in the beginning, all of those were people that I've treated. And a lot of them are strict animal-based diets. And some of them are strict animal-based diets that then then transition to what I would consider to be a carnivore-ish type diet with the least toxic plant foods, but still mostly based on animal meat and organs. And that nose-to-tail piece is super critical. It's incredible. You know, I think, you know, one of the things you're talking about is, and, and this is where, you know, I, I'm, my, my end of the spectrum is more, again, it's very based on Chinese medicine, but that being mm-hmm. said, in Chinese medicine, there's not a lot of raw food consumed. I mean, maybe you get in one point in the summer and you really, you only eat certain foods, but raw vegan is of all the things, this might surprise people, uh, but it's to your point, is probably the hardest diet to digest, period. It's the hardest on your gastrointestinal tract by far and the hardest on pretty much almost every organ you have. And so anyways, that being said, you know, I, I think this diet makes a lot of sense for people because it's easy. The other thing is your body, as you're, to your point, it's easy for your body to break down meat. It's very easy. You know, your stomach produces some acid, but it's already, it's, it's very easy compared to raw broccoli. Your body has to go through a battle to, to break down raw broccoli. So anyways, I'm with you. This makes a lot of sense. And I can see where, where you've helped people heal, especially autoimmune diseases with this diet because it's so easy on the body. And I do, I love this, the, the thing you talk about from, uh, what was it, from, from, from nose to tail? Yeah, from nose to tail. So, so let's talk about that for a minute. And I'd love for you to go into, if, if you're willing, to get into some of the individual organ meats and some of the areas of the body and what makes those unique and some of the nutrients they contain and how that can benefit us. Yeah, so this is something that's generally left out of mainstream Western culture. If most of us go to the grocery store, we're not going to see liver. Occasionally, if you go to Whole Foods, you might, but you're not going to see kidney or spleen or pancreas or thymus or brain. And most people were so far removed from hunting animals respectfully that most people don't want to see these. And I think it's really tragic. So Josh, I went hunting last weekend and I was able to respectfully harvest a deer with my bow. And I'll tell you, it is such a moving experience to be connected with the food you're eating, to to know that that deer is giving itself to me its nourishment. It's really, in order for something to live, something else must die. We've become very separated from our food. And, And the organs are just really one way that we are taught this, that most people don't want their food to look like the animal it came from. We're okay looking at a ribeye steak, but you don't want to realize that it came from a cow. But I think we should. And I think we should realize these organs are coming from animals and that 
that we that along with this nourishment, this what I believe and what you believe are the most fundamentally nourishing foods comes a responsibility to be a good human, to do this work that we both do. And that's, that's what it's about. In order for something to live, something else must die. We are all going to die. I am renting these atoms. You are renting these atoms. And I think many of us believe that somehow after our death, some part of us continues on. But when we are in this corporeal body, these are not, this is not our corporeum. This was composed of trees and plants and other animals. The atoms that comprise me were who knows what they were before I had them. And so we're all part of this cycle of life and death. And I think understanding that is critical. But for whatever reason, we are not always aware of organs. We didn't eat them growing up unless we're from a South American or Asian culture, but they're uniquely beneficial for us. And hunter-gatherer cultures eat animals nose to tail, both out of respect for the animal and unique nutrients. In so many tribes, the liver, for instance, is sacred. In the Nuer tribe in Africa, it's never been, it's not to be touched by human hands. It's eaten raw, distributed amongst the tribe immediately after an animal's killed. And just the heart is given to the warrior whose blow strikes the killing, you know, the decisive, um, the decisive hit to the animal. And it's given to that person. They believe the heart contains the spirit and the warrior, uh, you know, is gifted the strength and the, the, the qualities of the animal when they eat it. So it's, it's also within animals that eat each other. They always eat the organs first. Lions, these carnivorous animals, they'll eat the organs. There are all these stories of wolves and the alpha wolf is always the one that gets to eat the liver. And there are stories of orca eating livers right out of sharks. They'll just eat the liver. They don't want anything else in the shark but the liver. And so if we just start with that organ, you can look at muscle meat and it's very nutritious, zinc, heme iron, B6, B12. Um, but it doesn't have a lot of the things that we need to be optimal. You can't just eat muscle meat. And I'm a big advocate for nose to tail animal-based diets that include these organs because of the unique nutrients in things like liver. So what does liver have that muscle doesn't? Well, for starters, it has retinoic acid, the bioavailable form of vitamin A. And there's beta carotene in, in plants, but there's good evidence that that beta carotene is not as bioavailable as retinoic acid, especially if people have certain polymorphisms in genes like BCMO. So this retinoic acid is critical for humans, and that's in liver. There's also copper in liver, which balances zinc and muscles. There's things like selenium in good amounts, and there's a really large amount of riboflavin in liver. I would challenge anyone to think about where they are getting their riboflavin from. It's pretty hard to get enough riboflavin eating only meat, but heart and liver specifically have a larger amount of riboflavin. Liver is richer in folate than muscle meat. Liver is richer in biotin than muscle meat. There's so many unique nutrients, and we haven't even started talking about the things like peptides and growth factors, which are unique to liver that we don't even know about. And then there's, so there's just so much nutrition, so much anthropology, so much story here. And you can go down the line. You can look at a spleen. The spleen is the richest source of heme iron in the body. So if you have anemia, spleen is, is what it's about. And there are unique peptides in spleen, these small signaling molecules made of protein that have been characterized, splenin, splenopentin, tufsin, that have special effects probably in humans as well. And when we're eating these, these organs, everybody thinks about these peptides now. Our mutual friend, Ben Greenfield, is all about BPC-157, but BPC-157 is produced in the gastric lining of the stomach. So if you're eating an animal's stomach, you're getting some BPC-157. And most people are hearing this going, I will never eat spleen, liver, or a stomach. And that's why I built Heart and Soil, which is my company, uh, and we make these organs in a desiccated form. So if people can get these from farms, you can get these organs. So in the last 24 hours, uh, I'll, I'll, um, I'll share with your audience that I've eaten deer liver, deer heart, cow liver, 
um, cow uh, spleen, I've eaten thymus, and I've eaten pancreas, and I actually ate testicles because I got testicles from the deer that I was, that I was hunting as well. So a lot of people can't get those organs fresh. If you can get them fresh, that's great, but if you can't, something like a desiccated organ where we freeze dry it can help fill in these gaps for people. The company is called Hard and Soil. The website's hardandsoil.co if people want to check us out. But I think the fresh is best and if you can't use the desiccated. But there's so many benefits to these organs and they really do complete the picture. I know you guys use these in TCM as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, if you would, if, if for everyone listening, if somebody would have gone into an ancient uh, Chinese apothecary, which is another word for pharmacy, essentially, uh, you would have gone in and you would have found herbs, mushrooms, and glandular slash organ meats. That's throughout history up until 150 years ago. What Dr. Paul is saying here, everything you're saying is th that was medicine. When we use the term food is medicine, it's the thing I say constantly. When we're talking about food is medicine, it's most true for organ meats, glandulars, mushrooms and certain herbs and spices like turmeric. That's what's been used for medicine since the beginning of time. So I'm talking, you know, whether it's Weston A. Price or, you know, uh, Royal Lee or some of these other people have, you know, that have done amazing research, they found and came to the same conclusions that you have, Dr. Paul, and the power of organ meats. So we're completely aligned there. And for myself, I've actually taken, liver is the one I definitely do the most. I do a lot of, I do a lot of, uh, uh, beef and chicken liver. And then also I have venison liver and I'll, I'll do, uh, if I'm not getting it in my diet, you know, for, for a while, then I'll take it as a desiccated supplement as you're talking about. And then I've also done spleen and heart fairly frequently. Hey guys, I am super excited to announce that I have a new book coming out in February. It's called ancient remedies and it covers how to get to the root cause of disease and ancient healing tips. You're going to learn so much about medicinal herbs, mushrooms, essential oils, CBD, and so much more. In fact, there's a lot of herbs and healing remedies you've never heard of where I get into the advanced nutrition tips. Plus, you can join my exclusive VIP mission team for bonus content, including a sneak peek into the book, Q&As with me, a shopping list, supplement guide, meal plans, and so much more. To get free access, check it out by visiting DrAxe.com forward slash ancient remedies to learn more and pre order your copy today. So, I'd love to hear from you if somebody's new to, you know, new to this and they're learning, what do you think in terms of organ meats? And I know it's going to be different for everybody, but what do you think are maybe three of the biggest organ meats we can benefit from getting in our diet, whether it's buying, you know, from a, from a company? that is creating these supplements or, you know, getting it right from the source and eating it as a meat, whether it's supplement or meat. But my question again is, what do you think are three to five of the most important in ranking order that we can all benefit from? So I love this question. When we think about eating nose to tail, I'm going to expand on this a little bit. The components that are often left out are the organs, but also things like the broths and the connective tissue. And so I want to include those as well. So yeah. I will actually say that, the first one to start with is liver. And if you can get it fresh, do that. Um, get it from a good source. If you can't get it fresh, get it in a desiccated form. The second one is probably heart. Heart is a unique form of, has a lot of coenzyme Q10. And it, there's so much history around heart that I think it's just a valuable thing to eat. And beyond liver and heart, I think spleen is quite valuable for people because of the heme iron and the peptides. So those would be the three organs I would start with. Again, 
we make desiccated organ supplements at Hardened Soil that have all those organs in them. And then beyond that, I would say, get bone broth, get glycine, get connective tissue. So get tendons um, because you need the glycine to balance the methionine in a big way. And the methionine is rich in muscle meat. Glycine is richer in connective tissue. We know these are involved in this sort of methylation cycle in human biochemistry. And then the last one I would actually say is animal fat. And you mentioned this earlier, saturated fats and animal fat are uniquely valuable for humans. So often we are just eating lean meat because we're fearing animal fat. But if you look at the tallow and you look at suet, this is kidney fat from animals. It's very waxy because it's high in a substance called stearic acid. The research around stearic acid is fascinating. It's an 18 carbon saturated fat. And there are good studies in humans that show that when you deprive humans of stearic acid by putting them on a vegetarian or vegan diet, incidentally, their mitochondria change shape, they fractionate, and they stop burning fat. And then you give them stearic acid back, either as a supplement or as animal fat, like a tallow or a suet, which is the kidney fat, and you see the mitochondria fuse and you see them start burning fat. We measure something called acyl carnitines as, uh, as these molecules move fat across the mitochondrial membrane and my acyl carnitines go down, suggesting that beta oxidation and or fat burning is going up. So if you want to burn fat in your mitochondria and you want your mitochondria to work, it's so interesting to see that molecules that are unique to animal fat, stearic acid is found in some rare plant foods, but not much, molecules unique to animal foods like stearic acid, odd chain fatty acids like pentadecanoic acid and heptadecanoic acid have actual biological signaling roles in humans. So get animal fat, presumably or preferably from grass-fed, grass-finished animals. That's where you're going to have the best ruminant animals. That's the best composition because I'll just add as an asterisk here for people if they want to go to this rabbit hole, lard from pigs fed corn and soy is not gonna have a lot of stearic acid and it's gonna be enriched in linoleic acid because monogastric animals like chicken, ducks, turkey, and, um, and, and pigs are going to accumulate polyunsaturated fatty acids in their diet. So when they're fed evolutionarily, or I should just say inconsistent species, inconsistent diets, they accumulate polyunsaturated fats just like humans do. So that's why the linoleic acid thing is so damaging for us because we hold on to it. We can't get rid of polyunsaturated fats very quickly. Ruminants can get rid of it. Cows uh, and lamb and bison, they have a special biochemical step in their rumen where they can convert polyunsaturated fats to saturated fats. But humans store it and animals can store it. So those would be the five, liver, heart, spleen, bone broth, connective tissue, and real good animal fat, specifically animal tallow or the suet from the kidneys. I love it. And I want to mention this too. There's a principle that is in ancient forms of medicine. It's called like supports like. And so this is, you know, right on what Dr. Paul is talking about everybody. And so it's this, it's that if you eat a food that looks like an organ, it supports that organ, or if you eat that organ itself, it supports that area of your body. So what Paul's saying here is, Hey, what everyone's doing today is we're eating chicken breast. We're eating, you know, the tenderloin of a steak. And we're getting though the muscle meat, so that's supporting your muscles. We've got plenty of mus muscle support, but liver supports your liver, your body's second largest organ, which also detoxifies phytoestrogens and helps build your blood and does all of these things, right? digest fat, all of this stuff. So like, that's number one on the list for that reason. You've got, you know, you've got your, uh, your heart, which is critical for uh, you know nourishing your blood, which runs throughout your entire body. You've got the spleen, which is actually a big part of your immune system. 
You know, the thymus is another one. You could do that. You know, and so, so if you're a person and you've got liver issues, eat liver. It's actually why Dr. Gershon, who wrote, uh, came up with Gershon therapy, found in cancer patients, you not only do vegetables, you do liver because most people with cancer have toxicity issues. And so all that being said, if you've got brain issues, eat brain. If you've got blood issues, eat heart and spleen. And so anyways, I just wanted to say that's an ancient principle that's been around for 4,000 years and that medical studies have proven as well that these organ meats actually help us heal. One of the, got two more questions for you. One of them being Dr. Paul, one of the biggest things that I guarantee you come across is people saying, this is unethical. It's not good for the planet. How do you respond to that sort of criticism and people saying, you know what, eating animals is bad for the planet versus growing corn and soy is somehow good for the planet? So anyone that says that has never been to a regenerative farm. Anyone that says that has never seen wild bison on the plains outside of Jackson, Wyoming. Yeah. Anyone that says that has never been to Jackson, Wyoming and seen 2,500 elk in the elk refuge outside of Jackson Hole in the winter. Ruminant animals like this, grazing animals, cloven-hoofed animals have been around on this earth for a very long time. And they were around, in 1850, there were 250 million ruminants in North America, bison, elk, deer, pronghorn, uh, antelope. And what they did was not destroy the environment. <laughs> they didn't create global warming. They made the most fertile soil in North America in the center of the country where the plains were. And then we came along and monocropped the heck out of it and destroyed it all with a, a unidirectional flow of nutrients into plants. And then we pulled the plants off the land. Raising animals within an ecosystem is a cyclic nature of nutrient uh, continuation on the land. What happens is that cows eat grass, which is fortunately a food that humans can't eat. They turn it into meat, which we can eat, and organs. They burp out a little bit of methane, which becomes carbon dioxide in the atmosphere after it's oxidized. And then plants do an amazing thing. Plants inhale carbon dioxide and they turn it into the carbohydrates which, plant with, which cows then eat. But there's also poop and pee from cows returning nitrogen and nutrients back to the soil. So if you look at farms like white oak pastures in Georgia and others in this country that are doing agriculture with animals that mimics the normal grazing patterns of bison, elk, deer, antelope, pronghorn, you will see the soil carbon increase over time. In the last 20 plus years, white oak soil carbon has gone from 0.5 to over 5%. And that may not mean a lot to people, but visually, if you look at the soil at white oak pastures, it is the color of dark chocolate. And if you look at the soil of the neighboring farm 25 yards away, it is the color of, uh, I don't know, like maybe chicken soup or the color yeah. of the wood table behind you, you know, like very, very light chocolate milk or something. You're looking at two different things. It's coffee grounds versus lightly colored wood. That is 0.5 in the lightly colored wood versus 5% is chocolate coffee ground soil. Chocolate coffee ground soil means that plants have more mycorrhizal networks, their roots are healthier, the grass is healthier, and that during rain events, every 1% of carbon holds an inch of rain. And so you can get five inches of rain, it'll all go into the soil, and there will be no soil runoff. What happens if you monocrop the soil? All that topsoil has run off in a rain event and ends up in an estuary or a waterway and chokes that ecosystem. So we're talking about a cyclic flow of nutrients when you're raising animals on the land properly. This is not factory feedlot stuff versus unidirectional flow of nutrients into plants off the land. And what do you have? Now you have 
hundreds of thousands of acres, hundreds of thousands of acres of land in the United States that are fallow, that won't grow anything because we've monocropped them. Monocrop is just sucking the life out of the land. That's not sustainable. The only way that humans are going to be able to actually fix this is to put animals back on the land. That's how they've always existed. It's an ecosystem recreation. And this means being responsible consumers and understanding the value of grass-fed, grass-finished animals, regenerative agriculture. Yeah, it costs 20 to 30% more, but that's 20 to 30% you're investing in your kids, 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 and the persistence of the human species on the planet. I've said that in the past that I think there is no single metric that will determine the persistence of the human species on this planet more than the amount of soil carbon in our earth. And if we deplete that, we will all die. <laughs> and there will be companies that will try and do lab-grown meat and synthetic fertilizer. But the whole reason synthetic fertilizer was created in the 1940s was because we were monocropping the heck out of the land. Right. So the, the most ethical choice is absolutely to, to, in fact, raise animals properly on the land and recreate ecosystems. And I would challenge anyone to see wild bison, or go to Jackson Hole, or go to White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia, and to see this happening. And I went to White Oak recently for a cookbook shoot. The grass is so thick. The animals are so healthy. There's birds and bugs and worms in the soil. And it's an ecosystem. It looks like a wild land. It's a grassland. It's a wild grassland ecosystem, essentially, that we're recreating on a farm. Yeah, I just want everybody to just take notice of this. One, th th these are absolute facts that Dr. Paul is talking about. If you want to heal it, and by the way, I'm not talking about just from random facts. For me, like I co-own a farm with Jordan Rubin, 5,000 acres of certified organic land where we have bison, we have water buffalo, we have yaks, we have Uriel gazelle and goats. We have, we, we have all of these animals and we follow the New Zealand grazing method, which is letting them go from pasture to pasture like they would in the wild. And we, we practice this. And here's the thing, when we bought the land, it was dirt and rock and now it is thick, lush grasses over 10 years later of dark brown soil, like you're saying, and it's healing the planet. Literally, we've had different species of animals come in there. I mean, it's, you're literally changing the weather in the area. You're changing the whole environment. So what you're saying is, again, all of us have a choice every single day. If you want to heal the planet, you can either buy, number one food is going to be grass-finished beef, pasture-raised chickens, bison, these sort of foods that are uh, and only buying them though, if they are from a regenerative farm and they're certified organic and they're following those proper methods, that along with doing foods that are more perennials, um, you know, vegetable perennials like asparagus and not certain other ones, those things together, that's what heals the planet. If you really care about the planet, if you care about animals and saving animals, the worst thing you can do is buy any single food that has corn, soy, wheat and any form of cotton seed those are the things that are actually crushing and destroying our planet and those are the number one foods found in most you know plant so-called plant-based products and so anyways i know you and i could go on big tangents about this but these are absolute facts if you want to heal the planet eat more wild grass finished you know animal products and certain organic vegetables and outside of that I mean, there are other things, there's fruits and there's some other things, but for the most part, if you're eating a lot of those processed, those grains, especially the GMOs, you are destroying the planet. So Dr. Paul, just to close up here, any last pieces of advice or thoughts uh, for, for everyone to listen to on, on how to take their health to the next level? I really think it's as simple as trying to understand 
how humans are meant to eat. What is a species appropriate diet for humans? And the, we can look at medical studies, we can look at free living hunter gatherers. I think that we all realize at this point in human history that we're living in a way that's a little bit different than the way our ancestors lived. And, and that, you know, like there are cultures living on this earth who live closer to the land, who respect the land in a different way. And I think if we look at the way that they live, we learn things and the things we learn are all the things we've been talking about today. Meat and organs, animals eating nose to tail are always prioritized, no matter what culture you go to. And in fact, people like Weston Price, you know, recent anthropologists who are actually a dentist, you know, the more animal foods you eat, the, the stronger the tribe was. And so the more animal foods, the amount of animal foods eaten by cultures was only contingent on how much they could get their hands on. And if you look at cultures like the Hadza, when they have animals in camp, they will stop digging for tubers. They will prioritize animal foods above almost everything else. So making these the center of our diet, eating nose to tail, that's really the biggest thing. And then from my perspective, and I think we could probably do two or three more podcasts digging down into this, there is a spectrum of plant toxicity and eliminating the most toxic plants. And you and I may have a little bit different perspectives on what the most and least toxic plants are, but I elaborate all this in my book, The Carn or code or at hardensoil.co. I've talked about all this on my podcasts. But you know, I think thinking about which plants work well with your body and which don't is going to be the key to people achieving health. Get all the nutrients in you can, take as out as many toxins as you can, and please, please, please avoid processed seed oils, which are insidious in food, and avoid processed sugar, which most people always already do. But I think that's the formula for human health. It's simple. And that's the dietary formula. But for me, and I like that you do this with your community as well, that's the first stepping stone. And the other stepping stones are community and meaning and yep. spirituality and exercise and play and just being outside and doing things. Personally, I call this a remembering. I think that in the last few hundred years, the last few thousand years, humans have really been subject to a lot of amnesia. We've forgotten what it means to be a human and we're living in this strange environment. You sort of wake up, we're born into this world and this is all we know, but history is so fascinating. If you look at where we've come from, it's different. And I think that most of us are unhappy or unwell because we're, we're doing things that are not species appropriate. We're not spending enough time with people we care about doing things that are meaningful outdoors or eating the foods we're supposed to be eating. Yeah, I'm with you. I think there's a degree, if you want to look at people that are healthy, it's, you know, you need to be, uh, you know, following a lot of these principles you're talking about, eating these real foods and then, you know, community and connection with God. I mean, those things are critical to us being healthy. I want to encourage you guys, check out Dr. Paul's book. It's called The Carnivore Code. Again, The Carnivore Code. It's got a five-star rating on Amazon. A book you can get it again amazon.com barnes and noble bookstores nationwide and also check out the fundamental health podcast with dr paul saladino md and dr paul I want to say hey thanks so much for coming on today sharing your wisdom i think there's just a wealth of knowledge here especially you know i talk about food as medicine what is one of the top three things that have been used since medicine since the beginning of time organ meats, glandulars, all these things you're talking about. So again, I'm with you and want to say again, thanks for your wisdom. And hey, pray everybody has a blessed week. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys, thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Make sure to go to my recent Instagram post and let me know what your favorite part of the show was. Also, don't forget to follow me at Dr. Josh Axe there on Insta, where I cover the latest health trends, natural medicine, and so much more. Also, if you're loving this podcast, do me a big favor, head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. Thanks so much for being on mission with me. See you next week.
This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice and have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. In some cases, individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein.